Good morning. How are you today? Yeah. My name is Jordan Johnson. I am the Student Ministries Director here at the Elyria campus, and it is my joy and pleasure and honor to bring the sermon today. Jen will be back to bring us through Easter, um, but for day you guys are with me. So a little bit about me. Um, my family and I, we moved on to Ohio a little over a year ago last December, and we have enjoyed being here amongst you guys. We look forward to meeting more of you and getting to know you, um, but it's been great, and thank you for your welcome here so far. So as most of my time is spent with students, and, and the, one of the passions of my life is um, helping people become who God has for them, but also helping modern brains wrap their minds around the ancient scriptures in a really cool way. Because, well, let's just say it, the Bible is amazing. So today we are going to be in our series of prep time. This is the beginning of Holy Week. And so in many ways we are preparing for Easter, but for today we are going to be finishing our series of prep time when we are examining the early chapters of Luke to see how Jesus was prepared for his ministry. And so today we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy that follows. Now I do understand that many of you guys may be unfamiliar with who I am and and what I do. And so one of the things I thought would be helpful is if I take my entire outline and I put it up on the screen. That way you guys know where we're going, how we're gonna get there, and why we're going there, okay? So here's the deal. This is the plan today. Okay, we're gonna start with heresy. And then that's gonna move us into Easter eggs. And then we're gonna spend some time talking about homeless birds and broke people, which of course is gonna lead us into cake batter. And then we're gonna talk about the bird king. And then as we bring it to a close, we're gonna talk about identity and identification And then we're going to end with stirring of the muddy water. So now that you guys know the plan, please turn with me into the book of Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 21 through 38. And when you find it, please rise with me for the reading of Scripture. And so just to let you guys know, I chose to spend more time um, studying than learning how to pronounce pronounce names out loud. So when we get to the genealogy part, I know you'll be disappointed, but we're just going to read the top and the bottom lines of the genealogy. Um, If you want to read the rest, that's on your own time. All right, join me with scripture. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens opened And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my one dear son. In you I take great delight. Now when all the people were baptized, oh, we already read that. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. And he was the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, et cetera, et cetera, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So a real quick note, I'm going to be teaching out of a translation called the New English Translation or the Net Bible. Um, it has quickly become one of my favorite translations because if you notice on the version app, but also in the Bibles they produce, one of the things they do is they actually give you the reasons why they translated the words the way they did. It's an amazing translation, very readable. But just so you guys know, when you see Net, that's New English Translation. But you can follow along in your Bibles and you will still be able to join us. Okay, so here we go. So let's begin with heresy and the heart. 
Why would Jesus be baptized? Heresy in the heart, why would Jesus be baptized? That's one of the most immediate questions that comes off of that because the entire beginning of the chapter is all about people coming to be baptized for re- because they are repenting of their sins and seeking forgiveness. And in the scene, Jesus is standing in line. What is going on? Okay, now... Um, the majority of heresies that come to us through church history often deal with the nature of the Trinity or the nature of Jesus while he was on the earth. And so thankfully we have both of those things in our passage today, so lucky for us. But in many ways, it is a simple answer, but I don't just want to give you a simple answer because, well, then that wouldn't be as much fun. In fact, I thought it would be really interesting um, that I wanted to find someone who believes that Jesus was baptized because he had sinned in his past and he needed something to be repented of. And so I started looking. I don't know anyone who holds this particular belief. Um, And so to the internet we go. And the internet did not disappoint. I was able to find a number of articles and videos of people um, teaching or explaining this, this, this heresy that Jesus had sinned and therefore needed to be baptized so that he could become the son of God or, or something else so that he could gain power. There was, there's, this was really a lot of talk. And some people just from their personal opinion, um, but also some people from different faith traditions. Um, but as, we, as, as I was going over the data and kind of searching their, their thoughts and kind of sensing the positions of their heart, two things kept coming up over and over again that were common to almost every single one. Okay, the first one is, the most of the time, it's an irresponsible interpretation of Scripture. Either they're leaving parts out, or they have such a narrow focus on the text that that it's just really not allowing the Scripture to be what it is. And the second reason is oftentimes you, you sense that there is a desire to keep distance from Jesus. And the way that this belief works is, if I believe that Jesus had sinned in his early life and needed forgiveness, then he's no better than I am. So why is he, why do I have to listen to him? Or, or, or oftentimes it's like, aha, you see, you see, he is not who he says he is. Either way, the result is it allows the person to excuse themselves from obedience to his commands. Now, in your notes, you will see I have another blank down there, and that's for you. If as you're going through the sermon, or if you can think of people and experiences in your life, if you can think of a reason why it would benefit someone to believe that Jesus had sinned, um, and you think of that, go ahead, write that down. But, so the first thing, we, we can... We can do something about the first reason, but the second reason, that's an issue of the heart, and that's the Holy Spirit's terrain. But perhaps there's something for us to see as well. So with that in mind, let's get into the text itself as we start talking about Easter eggs and other curiosities, okay? The questions that Luke forces us to ask. Good Bible reading, good Bible study begins by asking good questions, and there are plenty of questions to be asked with this passage. This is a a huge event in the life of Christ, but yet in Luke's gospel, it only occupies two verses, all right? But even then, there's still a lot of stuff. So for instance, did anyone else here notice that in this whole scene, Jesus and John never talked to each other? Huh? Is that weird? I thought that was weird. 
So this is one thing, no matter how familiar we are with a story, it's always worth taking the time to notice the details, the absence of details, and what Luke is trying to get his readers to see. We believe that the Spirit inspired Scripture so that all details are in their place and there's no wasted space in Scripture. So if it's there, it's worth asking the time, worth asking the question, why? So let's go through some other questions that pop up from this text. Um, And once again, in your bulletins, I have added another blank down there. If you can think of a question that the text raises that I don't cover today, go ahead and write that down. And and if you would be so kind, I would love to see what you come up with and what you have written. So please show me that if you will. All right, so here we go. So let's go through the text and we're going to start pulling out the questions and then we're going to put it all back together as we go. All right, so... Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized, okay? So what this means here is that Luke is emphasizing the presence of a crowd, and this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Why is Luke talking about the crowd and Jesus? Matthew, Mark, they kind of allude to it, but they're not specifically referring to a crowd. And John, he's talking about the story in past tense. But Luke pays attention, and he says, bringing to mention the crowd, which is helpful for us to understand. If you look at Jesus's baptism on the internet, not that it was filmed, but if you look at pictures of the baptism on the internet, most of the time, about 90% of the time, you'll see something like this. You'll have John, you'll have Jesus, you'll have the dove. And if it's, you know, this is, this is uh, early church history icons, Typically, there's angels, um, there's people riding fish. Um, But most of the time, what you're going to see is Jesus and John by themselves with the dove. Okay, so there are actually very few pictures. There There are some out there, but there's not a whole lot of pictures that depict this scene happening amongst a crowd. But Luke pays special attention and wants us to know there is a crowd present. Why? What's going on here? Let's continue moving. And while he was praying, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, so here's another question. First of all, why a dove? That's weird, but we're gonna get to that in a little bit. But the other weird question, why does Luke talk about the dove having a bodily form? In Matthew, in Mark, in John, they all refer to the dove or the appearance like a dove Luke is the only one that specifically pays attention to the fact that the dove had shape. It carried weight. It had mass. It occupied space in this realm, which is weird. The Holy Spirit, by definition, is something that is intangible and immaterial, but yet everywhere, similar to wind or breath. But yet Luke is going, yeah, spirit and bird. Put them together. We'll get back to that, though. Let's also talk about Easter eggs. Easter eggs, everyone knows what an Easter egg is, right? Now, we're not referring to the Easter holiday, but we're referring to film and television. An Easter egg in a movie is a hidden reference, a detail, or an inside joke that the the filmmakers place in the background of the scene of a movie, and they don't tell you about that. And so what happens is the person who's carefully watching the film or more likely the person who's re-watching the film multiple times, will then be able to find and see these Easter eggs as the more time they spend with Scripture. And I'm going to make an argument for you that that's exactly what Luke 
is doing. As Pastor Jim and I were talking about, if you pick up the book, the book of Luke and you twist it and wring it out, it's just going to drip Old Testament everywhere. And Luke does this, but he doesn't tell you about it. But it's important to note, you know, Easter eggs, what they do is they give you texture. They give you context. They give you added details, but they're not filling in gaps or holes in the plots. And so when we look at Easter eggs, please remember, we're not talking about secret information. We're not talking about privileged information that only some people know. We are talking about Luke being very intentional with how he records the book of, well, the book of Luke, um, where he's being very intentional with how he uses scripture. And so what we're gonna see though today is that Luke is trying to draw the reader's attention to the Exodus story as the backdrop of the baptism of Jesus. And so we see things like when he comes up out of the water, that is to evoke our memory of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And as he continues on, he's stirring our memory back when in in Mount Sinai. So when the dove descends down upon Jesus, that's evoking our memory of Mount Sinai, when God came down from the mountain to dwell with his people in the desert as they were journeying through the wilderness. And pay attention, in two weeks, Pastor Jim is going to lead us into chapter 4 of Luke. This this motif, this Easter egg, still continues on to chapter 4. And now that you'll be looking for it, let me know when you see it. All right, but let's continue on though. And finally, a voice came from heaven. You are my one dear son, in you I take great delight. Now this is a really, really cool part because once again, Luke talks about a crowd being there. So this is the question that I have. And just so you know, there's no way we can answer it, okay? So don't worry about it, but just think about it. If there's a crowd present, God is talking to his son, can the crowd hear it? Or is this something that only Jesus can hear as God's talking to him? But let's continue on because this is the really cool thing. When God, now clearly God is talking to Jesus, but when we're looking at the details, we must remember at this baptism, there's more than one Son of God, present at the baptism. Let's continue our journey. Homeless birds and broke people, retracing the story of God's people. So let's begin with this nifty little cliffhanger of there's more than one Son of God. This is actually a theme that is developed in the Old Testament, the Son of God is not an exclusive title to Jesus, but other people in the Old Testament have held this title, one of them mainly being the nation of Israel. Let me show you what I mean. In Exodus chapter 4, I'll I'll put it up on the screen, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is being prepared to go into Egypt to bring his people out, this is what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, check this out, Exodus chapter four. You must say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But since you have refused to let him go, I will surely kill your son, your firstborn. 
Obviously, this is very intense language, and you can really feel what God is talking about. You get the sense that he is a parent, and he sees his child in distress. And, and what is rousing up in him is not apathy or passive, but it's action, and we are going to do something about it. But let's also, let's bring it back to the dove. Let's spend some time talking about the dove, because this is the interesting thing. Why is a dove used in this passage at all? Okay, once again, a quick internet search will bring up, well, a dove is a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of purity. And, and one's, I totally agree with that. But at the same time, that could be the same thing associated with the wedding dress. So uh, there's part of me that says, I agree, but I'm not satisfied. If Luke and the gospel writers are using this language on purpose, Why? What's going on here? So we go to the scriptures. Where else is a dove used? And fun fact, this is the only time a dove is mentioned in the New Testament at Jesus' baptism. There's one more phrase um, when, in Matthew when Jesus tells his disciples to be as wise as serpents and as innocent, uh, as innocent as doves. But his baptism is the only place where a dove features a major role in the New Testament scriptures. Furthermore, This is the only time in the entire Bible when the Holy Spirit shows up with a dove. Excuse me, the New Testament. There's times in the Old Testament. We'll we'll save that for later. Um, In the New Testament, this is the only time the Spirit and the dove are in here together. So what's going on with that? Let's continue to look. The The New Testament's not being very helpful to us right now, so let's turn our attention to the Old Testament. And in there, we will find some treasure. There's three big areas where doves show up in the Old Testament scriptures. First of all, you have poetry, the book of Psalms, the Song of Solomon. Um, It shows up there, but the way they use bird is in the very poetic, metaphorical way. So it's really not helping us bring interpretation to a narrative. So we're going to set that aside. That's a different sermon for a different day. But there's two other parts that do show up in the narratives that kind of help us wrap our minds around what's going on the dove. And so perhaps... This is why. The first place that we're going to talk about is in Leviticus chapter 1, okay? And we're going to talk about the sin offering. So in Leviticus chapter 1, God is is telling the Israelites, these are appropriate offerings to offer to atone for your sin. And he starts with the bull. If you need to atone for your sins, bring a bull and sacrifice it. But if you can't afford a bull a lamb or a goat, that's also appropriate. If you can't afford a lamb or a goat, two doves or pigeons, the Hebrew word that's kind of both and, but two pigeons. So if you cannot afford, doves are one of the cheapest appropriate offerings to God for atonement for your sins. If you guys remember back in chapter two, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, what did they carry with them? Two doves, because that was their sin offering, speaking of their financial status. But there's another part where the doves show up. And I think some of you guys can already guess where it's at. It's in the story of Noah. Remember back in chapter six of Genesis, Noah's ark. After the storms had had ceased and the ark was just adrift on top of the water, Noah takes a dove and he releases it out. And he says, 
dove, go see what you can see. And the dove came back as all I could see was the sea. Um, So he couldn't find anything. So he came back to the ark. And so Noah waited some time. And then he released the dove again. and, And the dove comes back with an olive branch. Oh, okay. Hope is kindled. There's something out there. And he waits a little bit longer. And then he releases the dove the third time. And the dove doesn't return. And what we infer from this The dove didn't need to return to the ark because it has found a place to build a home. So we're going to take these two concepts, okay? Israel as the son of God and a bird who's, when it shows up in scripture, you get homelessness and poverty coming from symbolism. And we're going to take that and let's bring that into the story of Jesus' baptism And let's see if we can see what the Bible is trying to tell us. But before we do that, I want to share with you guys an amazing passage in Scripture. It's found in Hosea. So if you will, go ahead, keep your place in Luke, uh, but then turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. As part of my study, I came across this passage, and I got so excited, and I wanted to share it with you guys um, because... This is a great thing that's going to transport us from the Old Testament and bring us into the new right back at the baptism. I will read it out loud. You guys are more than welcome to follow along. Um, So real quick, before we read, there's a couple of terms I want to make you aware of. Um, You're going to see Ephraim. Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. In this passage, Ephraim serves as a shorthand reference to Israel. Israel. So when you see Ephraim, that they're intending Israel, okay? It's both the same thing. And the second two terms, Adma and Zeboim, these are two cities that when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in Genesis, Adma and Zeboim were also cities that were destroyed along with the destruction. So when you guys see those, that's what's going on here. But follow along here. This is, not to use the term lightly, this is cool. Okay, here we go. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a young man, I loved him like a son, and I summoned my son out of Egypt. But the more I summoned them, the further they departed from me. They sacrificed to the Baal idols. They burned incense to images. Yet it was I who led Ephraim. I took them by the arm, but they did not acknowledge that I had healed them. I drew them with leather cords. With straps of hide, I lifted the yoke from their neck and gently fed them. They will return to Egypt. Assyria will rule over them because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will destroy the bars of their city gates. It will devour them in their fortresses. My people are obsessed with turning away from me. They call to Baal, but he will never exalt them. Now, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. All my tender compassions are aroused. I cannot carry out my fierce anger. I cannot totally destroy Ephraim because I am God, not man, the holy one among you will not come in wrath. 
he will roar like a lion and they will follow the Lord when he roars. His children will come trembling from the west and they will return in fear and trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Pretty cool passage, right? Like how amazing. You get God describing the the child and father relationship that he has with his people, but you also have this idea he's calling them home. That Hebrew word for trembling oftentimes is synonymous with the idea of hastening or being quick. And so some translations read that when the lion roars, his people come quickly to his call. And this is the best news. Yet the lion has already begun to roar and he is already assembling his people. So this is what we're talking about. When we talk about Jesus preparing for his ministry, as Jesus prepares for his ministry, God is also preparing his people to hear his call. But now let's talk about cake batter. When it comes to baking a cake, one of the most important ingredients that you need is something called the binding agent. Okay, most of the time it's eggs, but there's other things you can use. But the job of the binding agent is to hold everything together so that when you put the cake in the oven, you get a cake, excuse me, when you put the batter in the oven, you get a cake out. It won't happen without the binding agent. So when we talk about the genealogy, the genealogy is synonymous with the binding agent. It's the genealogy that holds it all together. Because here's the deal. This is one of the questions that comes up. Why did Luke put the genealogy right there? I mean, think about it. Okay, we have this big action scene happening. There's the people murmuring and trying to figure out what's going on with John, and he's baptizing people. And then Jesus shows up, and he is also baptized. And you get this cool scene where the Spirit is coming down and and all this really cool stuff. And then Luke stops everything and says, now I'm going to tell you about his family line. You know, and this is, this is terrible storytelling. Luke, why would you stop the action to go through all these names? And there's a reason. All details are there on purpose. There's no wasted space in the Bible. And Luke knows that this declaration of Jesus as the Son of God is a big deal. And so the genealogy serves two purposes is to verify the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. It's verifying the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's grounding his line to all of humanity. So as an example, in Matthew, when he talks about his genealogy, he goes from, he goes all the way back to Abraham and then stops. Luke, you know, Jesus, Matthew's referring to the covenant people, the Jews. Luke goes all the way to Abraham and then continues on all the way back to Seth, back to Adam, and back to the Son of God, God in whose image we were created. And so Luke, by using the genealogy here and now, he's saying, by the way, not only is this a true thing, but this is not just for the covenant people, it's also including all of humanity from the very beginning. 
but also the genealogy serves as a binding agent for the entire chapter of Luke, chapter three, but even it brings the first big story arc to completion. Remember back in chapter one, when the angel was talking to Mary about the coming birth of Jesus. Remember what the angel said? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the son of God. And so now we have our first like checkpoint, our first completion area here. Now that the genealogy declares that Jesus is the true son of God, well, then we got to see what happens next. But that's in two weeks. Pastor Jim is going to continue on our study. Now that he's called the son of God, what happens next? Okay, so let's move into, oh, I want to tell you a story now. I want to tell you a story about the bird king a peculiar inauguration. The bird king involves a group of men called augers, A-U-G-E-R-S, augers. And augers practice augury. Okay, so far so good. What is augury? Thank you so much for asking. I've been waiting to tell you. Augury is the practice of discerning the will of the gods and telling omens and fortunes by observing the movements and patterns of birds. Bird watching. But here's the deal. That's not the most interesting part. The real, the interesting part, oh, another cool fact, our modern word inauguration is a direct descendant of the practice of augury. So let that sink in. Okay, so, but the really cool thing that we are gonna be talking about though is the origins of augury. And the origins of augury date all the way back to the founding of Rome, where you have Romulus and his twin brother, Ramus. And they are fighting and struggling and trying to figure out who's the right king of this newly found city. And according to legends, the gods, the Roman gods, they sent an eagle down from the heavens to descend on the shoulder of Romulus thereby letting them know the God's will that Romulus is the true and rightful king of the city of Rome. Do you guys see it? How, how did Luke describe the baptism of Jesus? A bird coming from the heavens, descending upon the true Son of God. See, this is one of the things that the ancient readers would have been really well aware of, and it's kind of lost on us because it's so far removed from our culture. But this is part of Luke's clever design of Scripture to let the people know something big is happening. But he doesn't use an eagle. No, that's too easy. The big, majestic fire, the predator of the skies. He does not use that. He uses, what does he use? A bird that has more in common with homeless people and poverty than anything to do with majesty and authority. And so if we were to condense everything we've talked about up to this point, and we're just gonna anchor it right on Jesus, this is what I would say. This is the phrase that's gonna bind this all together, okay? The baptism of Jesus was the beginning of his ministry. And it also served as a sign that the king was taking humanity by the hand and guiding us towards the kingdom. 
So when we see here, when Jesus is being baptized, he is taking humanity and saying, let's go. We are gonna retrace all the steps that you have made so far, but instead of failure, instead of shame, instead of brokenness, it's going to be healing. It's going to be redemption. It's going to bring a wholeness out of people, not because of what you have done, but because I am leading the way. And he does this all the way through his ministry, all the way up to the cross. When he stops, he turns to his child and he says, you wait here. This next part I'm doing on my own. And when I am finished with this work, you will have a home with me. So let's bring it back to the question. Why did Jesus be baptized? And it's important for us to understand the difference between identity and identification. For Jesus, his identity, that which he lived out of, that's which he anchored his life upon was that a member of the Trinity eternally sharing in perfect relationship with another. His identity was the chosen Messiah for, to fulfill the mission of God. His identity was the true human one, the one without sin but he identifies with the mess of humanity. He stays in his identity, but he makes this really clear, I am with you. And so when he submits himself to the waters of baptism, he is saying that no matter what, from here on out, you and I are together. Let's journey. And so when we talk about stirring the muddy water, this brings us to the question, where are you today? Do you identify with the dove? Perhaps you're searching for a home. Maybe you haven't found the place where you feel like you belong and you feel kind of homeless in a way. Or maybe you're feeling impoverished, perhaps not financially or material, although that's very real and prevalent among us, but perhaps you're feeling spiritually drained or just that you don't have much to offer anyone else. We must all do the daily chore of life. And life is not as kind as we would like it to be. Perhaps you've heard the call of the lion. Maybe you've heard the lion's roar, but, and you've been following him, but the distance seems further off than you expected. Or maybe you've heard the call of the lion, but you're not sure from where it came from, and so you don't know the direction to go. It's important to remember, all of this is carried with us into the waters of baptism. Just because we are walking in the waters of redemption does not mean that we are not stirring up mud with every step. God is healing us. God is redeeming us. God is bringing out new things, but we are still in a world contaminated by brokenness and harm. And we must deal with that every day in the same way that Jesus does when he commits himself to being with his people. But let's end by talking about our friends at the very beginning. Is there anything within you that, that says, I need to keep a distance from Jesus? Maybe, maybe your story and experience has taught you that when you get close to Jesus and his people, you're gonna get harmed, you're gonna get hurt. And so arm's length, please. The truth and the glory 
And the invitation of Jesus' baptism is to remind us that he is with us regardless and that he is committed to being with us as he brings us into the redemption of all things. Being baptized in Christ means being immersed in the depths of both human need and God's love. Human need is one of the universals. It's something that we will always be searching for. And Christ fulfills that with his love. When the experts, when they talk about the path of the discipleship, when they talk about a change in life, they say it always begins at the same place. That a person, before they can make any changes, a person must feel invited to exist in the presence of another as they are. And the other person has the simple task of communicating to the other person in word, in deed, and in presence that they are precisely the person that they love, that they welcome, and that they want. And we get this from Christ. And God in Christ at his baptism, God distributed, he demonstrated to Jesus that he is precisely the person that he loves that he welcomes and that he wants, but also he has this amazing message for his own people, his children. You are the people that he loves, that he welcomes, and that he wants. And the journey of discipleship begins with this truth. So if I could say it another way, if God was talking to you today, perhaps he might say something like, You are my child. In you, I take great delight. So as we're closing, we are moving into a time of communion where we celebrate the feast of the children of God, when we celebrate the union that we have in Christ, the Son of God and the children of God together at the same table, celebrating the risen Christ the hope that we have and where he's leading us next. So today, maybe you have not heard the call of the lion. That's okay. Maybe today is that day. I invite you to join us at the table. For every person in here, you have a seat at the table. And some of you have taken it already and some of you have yet to accept the invitation. Maybe today is the day, but I trust the spirit knows what he's doing. He is patient and just because we may wait does not mean that he's not redeeming all things as we speak. So join me at the table today as we celebrate the brilliance, the amazing truth that the love and the light of the divine is mixing with the tears and grit of humanity and being made whole by the power of the true king, the son of God. So what's gonna happen next is uh, I'm going to pray and then we're gonna move into a time of singing. Um, We're also gonna be handing out the elements. So real quick, I need your attention because this is important. When we are handing out the elements, we have a new format today. And so when the plate is passed before you, you will see that there are two cups 
one stacked on top of the other. One cup contains the bread, and the other cup sits on top contains the juice. When it passes by you, you are supposed to take both cups, okay? So that you will have two empty cups by the time we're done with communion. Um, so, and then also hold your elements, and we will take them all together. Um, and then other important things to remind you guys. Again, keep an eye out for each other. If you see someone taking um, or missing some, just remind them and help them. If you see someone taking four, stop them. Tell them, help them put back. Um, there's plenty for everyone. But then also, if you realize you've missed an element or something like that, just raise your hand. The ushers will be watching, and they will attend to you. So with that being said, please join me in prayer. Father God, Lord, your baptism is absurd. If we look at it with the logic of the world, it's absurd. But you have said, this is the message I have for my people and we're going to do it this way. For those of you who long to hear the call of the lion, for those of you out here who are, who are searching for a home, searching for the place where you belong, the lion is roaring and you are invited. Holy mixes with human, the divine mixes with flesh, with communion and in baptism. And this is where we find our celebration. And so that as we take the elements, Lord, I ask for you to be patient and kind to us and thank you for bringing us this far in the journey. And that may we hear the call of the lion ever more clearly as we continue on learning to become more like you. So on behalf of all the children of God present here today, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done and that you are about to do. Thank you. This we pray in the name of the Lord. Amen.